Hi, I'm Beth Curran and welcome back to another episode of Stardust MQ. My guest today is Dr. Angel Lopez Sanchez. Angel is a researcher with the Australian Astronomical Optics at Macquarie University. His research is into galaxy evolution and star formation. He's also passionate about science communication and outreach, as well as sharing the joy of amateur astronomy. In this episode, we chat about his research, science communication, what it is like being a Spanish-Australian communicator, and also what he hopes for the future. Okay, so welcome to Stardust MQ. Thank you so much for joining me today, Angel. Um, firstly, I wondered if we could talk about just how you got into astronomy and astrophysics in the first place. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm very excited to finally be sharing my adventure in astronomy with all of you. Uh, well, the first time that I was, uh, you know, thinking about astronomy or uh, hooked into astronomy, I was really, really young. I was probably three or four. Um, and yes, as, as you know, from my, because of my name and my accent, even though I haven't lived in Australia for 14 years already, my background is Spanish and I'm from Spain. And in that time, I'm talking about the early 80s, the last century, of course, in, in Spain, in, in the city of Cordoba, where I was born, light pollution was not as bad as it is now. Mm. And, and I usually went with my mom to, to, the, to the terrace just to get uh, the clothes from the line, just helping her. And at night, looking at those stars, and I was asking her, what are those points of light? And she was the first one to, to tell me, well, these are stars, like the sun, but very far away. Sun are planets, sun are satellites that we are now humans sending into uh, around, around the Earth. And that was, wow, wow. Um, mm. Mind for a three, four years old kid. So from there, I just, every every. every holidays every birthday I was only asking for books about astronomy and for information about astronomy all my homeworks were about astronomy every time that I was asked to do a kind of um, an assignment in in a school if I could I would do it in something related to astronomy and that is what I have been doing basically all my life so basically in that moment I knew that I want I wanted to be doing astronomy and doing research so with only uh, 14 15 years i was already giving science communication talks mm. and uh, organizing camps for students and, and giving talks about astronomy then i started the university there in, in spain physics and finally i moved to the canary islands to do my phd in astronomy yeah, wonderful. And then how did you end up um, doing research here at Macquarie? Well, that was uh, um, another interesting uh, evolution in, in, in my career, because when uh, I was doing my PhD in, at the Canary Islands, in uh, one of the best astronomical observatories in the world, we compared sometimes with, of course, Hawaii and Paranal, but the La Palma is another of the very dark places and very high and uh, with we have there for example the Tempus, uh, Grand Telescope of Canarias DTC that is the, actually the largest optical telescope still in the in the world mm. and uh, from from there I was trying to understand 
what uh, was happening in dwarf galaxies, in starburst dwarf galaxies. Uh, dwarf galaxies, that's when you see them, were forming many stars. And we couldn't find easily what was the reason these dwarf galaxies in that particular moment were forming so many stars, there were so many star formation processes in these objects, tiny objects. And you can think about these uh, dwarf galaxies to be kind of giant nebula, plenty of gas, plenty of star formation, plenty of dust. And what I was finding in my first years, uh, using only optical near infrared images and spectroscopy, was that when you look carefully these objects, the majority of the times, there were actually two entities that they were colliding together. Ah, oh, okay. And that was the triggering mechanism for this strong star formation event. And, but I was missing something very important for getting that right. That was the neutral gas, the raw seed of, of, of star formation, the hydrogen gas. And how we can observe that using radio telescopes. So I was lucky enough to be uh, here in Sydney for the 2003 big uh, International Astronomical Union General Assembly. And, and, and then I was completely wow about all the things that parks at the Australian Telescope, Compact Array, and many other interferometers around the world, but particularly here in Australia. They were doing for trying to understand the gas in and around galaxies and how that gas is, is distributed much farther away than what we see in our images, in our optical images. And particularly, what it was, what was key for me was that the gas is tracing much easily galaxy interactions that we could see with optical images many times. So I said, well, I need this. I need this. So I contacted Barbara Koribaski at CSIRO. And um, well, even before, uh, even before defending my PhD thesis, uh, I was offered a postdoc position at CSIRO at, uh, at the ATNF, was before the ATNF, now it is CAAS, uh, CAS, CSIRO Astronomy and Space Science. And then I moved to Australia in 2007 to uh, continue observations of, of galaxies, of nearby galaxies, using the Australian Telescope Compact Array, also parks observations. And when that, uh, uh, my, my first three years that finished, I had the opportunity of joining Macquarie and AAO, then the Australian Astronomical Observatory, in a joint position uh, with Dan Sucker, Daniel Sucker, Again, for uh, studying multi-wavelength processes happening in, in galaxies. And that was in 2010 when I joined Macquarie University for the first time. Yeah, wonderful. So basically it's like you were studying these galaxies and the missing pieces that you needed were in Australia in the radio observing. Yes. And yes, so yes, you yes. came here. Yes, exactly. Um, and I have to tell you something. Um, now that a long, long time has passed in then, Many people were not encouraging to do this because they were saying, you are very good doing optical astronomy. Why are you moving into radio astronomy? And I was trying to put the case, hey, I'm missing this part here. I want to understand galaxy evolution. I want to understand what is happening in this particular topic, in these particular galaxies. 
And a key part, it is knowing what the diffuse hydrogen atomic gas is doing. Mm. And the only way of doing that is doing right interferometry. And also learning new techniques. It's, it's critical to learn new techniques and be a bit more, you know, uh, getting all that multi-wavelength approach that now it is quite, it is starting to be common. But 10 years ago, people were classifying astronomers into radio astronomers or optical astronomers. And, and that was something that I have to fight at the beginning because many people thought that I was an optical astronomer only because of my papers. My papers in that time were majoritarily from optical astronomy and infrared astronomy. And some few others, the people I was working closely in those times, they considered me a radio astronomer only. Mm. When I could provide the best of the two worlds, let's say that. On top of that, I also used ultraviolet and infrared images from space telescopes, from Galax and Spitzer and so on, because these are still providing the other missing parts of the puzzle of galaxy evolution. Yeah, amazing. Um, so do you feel like you ended up with some resolution to that question you were asking, or is that still ongoing in your research? Well, that is still ongoing, although definitely the, um, the research as I was conducting in those times, I was able to observe some few of these uh, blue compact dwarf galaxies, star-bar galaxies, dwarf galaxies forming many stars. And, and definitely all of them, we were finding funny things in the, in the gas when we observed them with, uh, with the right interferometer. And particularly when you compare with the many other dwarf galaxies that are around the, uh, in, the, in the local universe, that we were able to also to resolve the gas, that were not forming many stars. They were still, well, some, they have some few star formations sometimes, but sometimes not much. But usually you find a regular gas, rotating gas. But these galaxies, you find bridges, and you find tails, you find uh, tidal tails, independent clouds, galaxy collisions. Yeah, you, uh, that is what I have been find, finding. But then from there, I, I tried to move into uh, understanding much better the, the properties of the, these galaxies, not only the gas, but also the distribution of stars and the distribution of the nebula or the ionized gas. And for that, it is critical to use the technique that uh, we have been using for the last decade or so, or so in, the, in, in optical telescopes that is the integral field spectroscopy in order that we can dissect all those objects, resolving them to try to disentangle where the star formation regions are, where the massive stars and the whole stars and all of that, and also get trace the kinematics of the stars and the gas. And that is mainly my main research at the moment, still using the H1 as a driver of uh, the objects that we are analyzing and we are studying in, in the research. Amazing. So you're kind of like a galaxy dissector. You're kind of getting in there and trying to figure out all the different little pieces and how it works yes. together. Yes, and it is a bit different to uh, many of the studies that uh, right now we are right now conducting, and I'm part of them, many of these, when you have uh, surveys like the Kama survey that uh, we observe 
more than 300,000 galaxies using single fibers with, with the 2DF instrument at the Anglo-Australian telescope. And yet you can get the main properties of every galaxy and trace galaxy evolution, but you're not able to resolve them. You're not able to get exactly what is happening in each galaxy. You get a statistical results. And, and I'm doing the other way. What I do it is, okay, that is a galaxy of a set of few galaxies. And I'm going to try to get, well, what, it is, what, are, the, what, is the stars, what are the stars doing? What is the gas doing? Um, what is the distribution of, of the, the currents that we see, the stellar populations, the, the, the amount of metals, the gas, the dust, everything together, dissecting with the different uh, observations that we have from optical, near-infrared, ultraviolet, radio, and trying to get a better um, comprehension of particular objects, particular cases that you can say, well, Perhaps sometimes this assumption that we are we are assuming about how galaxies work in this particular case, not all of them are correct. Yeah. Always finding very weird things. In the moment that you go into the detail, you are finding things that are very difficult and challenging, let's say mm. that, to understand. Yeah, wonderful. It sounds super interesting. Um, you're also quite passionate about astrophotography, is that correct? Yes, but, but because astronomy has been my passion during all my life. So even when I was 13 or so, um, I got uh, the best uh, present that I could ever have gotten, <laughs> which was a small telescope that my father gave to me in the middle of the summer. Just it was not my birthday. It wasn't that it was just he felt that I was right, and I was completely wow. Um, from there, one of the things I wanted to do is to do astrophotography, and I was using actually his uh, very old film camera to do mm -hmm. astrophotography when I was thirteen and fourteen years old. Many many of these images were even taken with a black and white film, and uh, we were developing our very own images by ourselves. It was quite fun and very different to what it is now, of course. Um, and it was it was challenging, of course, because we didn't have the technology that we have now, but I have been always interested in that. And finally, um, in my late uh, years of my PhD, beginning of moving here, when I first have my uh, digital camera, my first digital camera, digital camera, then I have been, uh, trying to get uh, landscapes of uh, the stars, constellations, time lapses of the sky. Many of them are available in, in, in YouTube and have been used by TVs in, here in, and in Spain and the US and in science museums. And then also having my small telescope. And even last night, I was taking photos of the, of the sky from here, from my backyard, using my own equipment, my own small telescopes. It is just amazing. Uh, the quality of uh, the images that some other astronomers can now obtain with relatively easy uh, equipment, but you have to know how to, how to use it. But it is just astonishing what, what they are getting and the colors and the beauty and the depth, particularly if you are in a dark place. Yeah, so what would you say to someone who isn't an, a professional astronomer but is interested in astrophotography? Yes, yes, yes. Well, it, it is what I um, I said sometimes. 
when people ask me, well, but you, are, you sometimes say that you're an amateur astronomer. Yes, because it is what I am. Uh, and before being an astrophysicist, I'm an amateur astronomer. So I might not be an astrophysicist in three, four, five years in the future. I mean, working professionally in astronomy, who knows, because of all the challenges uh, that is happening at the moment. But nobody will take away my passion from the stars. Nobody will take away that I can be in my backyard observing with my telescope. And, and that is of habit driven me always. It's just the connection with the stars, the connection with the universe and transmitting that passion that I have about the stars, the planets, the galaxies, the nebula for, to the people that they realize how small we are. Yeah. <laughs> the universes and how many wonders are out there. Yeah, wonderful. So that kind of transitions into um, you're also a science communicator. So yeah, I guess you've already talked about it a little bit, but what made you passionate about science communication? Why do you think it's important? Well, I think, I, I think it is critical. I think it is critical that we scientists go and talk to the general public as much as we can. I know that not every scientist can do this, but definitely all those that are good on that, that they like doing it or love or have the passion for doing it, they, they actually, if they can, they should be allowed to do it as much as possible. Um, there are many reasons because of that. It is not only that um, at the end of the day, we are paid by societies and we have to return that knowledge to the societies. But right now in these times, it is much deeper that all. And I'm not only talking about opening the mind to people and say, well, imagine that you're seeing the stars, the stars and the galaxies that you're seeing in, in the past because the light needs some time to reach us and so on the stars perhaps have already died and so on and your atoms were synthesized inside the stars billions of years ago blah 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 blah. and that is something that i have been saying many times that in right now in the current pandemic situation in the current uh, climate change crisis and that we are living on we really have to go and explain the society what we do and why that is important for them to realize how scientists work. And they, I'm not going to say that they trust us and they stand trusting us, but fighting all this fake news and misunderstanding that we are reading continuously, make people understand how science works, how we try to do our things and we try to do our best. And if we have something with, hundreds or thousands of people agreeing scientifically in something that is almost for sure happening and that is for example with the, the, the problem with the climate change and make our politicians realize that they should be listening to the people who have been studying this for decades yeah. so that is why i consider it is important also because we young people to be motivated and passionate about science and particular women. We need more women in science. We need more women that it doesn't really matter if you are a man, a man of the, the cultural background, the religion, the, the sex, the, the, the sexual preference. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. We are all 
equal, and we have to stand on that and, and defend that. And that is also why many times I say that, you know, it's, it's something that we have to do. Um, um, we have to work together. And at least in astronomy, I sense that that is happening. Um, we recently have the ASA, the, Australian, the Astronomical Society of Australia meeting, um, a general meeting, annual meeting, and there was a special session, for example, about talking about climate change and how we can try to uh, go to the public and explain the situation and, and say, wait, really, we are astronomers. We, have, we are finding how many right now? For more than 4,000 planets are on other stars, but there is only one that right now we are not for sure we have and and we are not taking care of it and mm. yeah so kind of taking not only bringing the passion and the really cool facts about astronomy to people but also just the general understanding of the scientific method and how it works and and that it can be you know trusted in in terms of these bigger issues um yeah that's great yeah and I, I think I think that that makes a person much richer in the sense of uh, understanding that uh, not everything is black and white. There is gray mm. colors, and we are starting to see a lot of polarities, particularly in politics, in the sense that if you are in this part, you only follow what they say, and you don't listen, and there are only arguments against the other, and that is not how science works. Mm. That is not. That is not because we try to. to we, we are trying to give uh, use the, the facts, the observations, the results, experiments to support our hypothesis. In the moment that this uh, these facts, the, the data is not supporting the previous ideas that we had. Well, we say sorry. That is not the way it is work. It is working. We have to change our paradigm. We have to move away from this and build something new that is explaining what we are fighting or what we are having right now with all these details. Yeah, that is why I think it is, it is also uh, important for, for people getting that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess maybe this is a, a silly question, but have you found any like differences between doing science communication in Spain or in Spanish speaking communities and in like Australia English? Is there like anything that is notably different or do you find it fairly similar wherever you go? Well, that is an interesting question that I have never put much thought about that. Uh, of course, definitely a big difference. It is a language that we are using. Um, but uh, in some way, I will say that majoritarily is quite similar in what we are trying to do. Um, in our passion, trying to communicate uh, science and communicate communicating our, our research and trying to make people understand why uh, they should be supporting science because at the end it is going to invest in, in the well-being of all the society that is having that. In, in, in that sense, I think that we are uh, similar. But definitely there are some few differences, small, minor differences here and there that is not that, that you know, per, perhaps that is also um, because of the slightly different uh, 
background, although we are still, let's say, Western civilization, so we have more or less, we are much more similar than what we think we are worldwide. But, um, but there is still some few things, for example, the way of, uh, of telling jokes, connecting into science, I see that that is much more used to be done in the Spanish background that in, oh. in this background in this English speaker or the way you are focused, slightly focusing it is a bit different but I, I, you know I, I should actually really think deeply about that I like that for too. Okay yeah, <laughs> yeah I was just curious because yeah not a lot of science communicators kind of operate in two different modes like that. Um, well, for me, for me, having uh, challenging, particularly via Twitter, I have um, a rule that is, uh, oh, well, we are almost uh, 12 hours separated, actually, 10 hours separated from, uh, from, from Europe, from, from, from Spain at the moment. And so what I try always to do is in my morning and afternoon, I always do everything in, in English by default. And during my night, I sometimes I do tweet some few in Spanish. I very rarely tweet something in Spanish in the middle of our Australian day because mm. people they should be sleeping there. Um, that is also funny, for example, in my my uh, my username in Twitter, that is the main social media, media social media platform that I use. It is El Lobo Rayado, which is the original name of my blog because I was the very first Spanish astronomer to have a blog about astronomy that mm. I created in 2003 when I was uh, starting my PhD in the Canary Islands. And Lobo Rayado, it's a bad translation from Wolf Rayet Stars. And that was the driver of my PhD thesis. I was finding this uh, strong star forming dwarf galaxies where even Wolf Rayet Stars were found. And from there, derived the Lobo, the Lobo Rayado, that is a bad translation from English to Spanish. And some people have told me, you should change the name. But every time that I open a poll, should I change the name? They say, no, because I have plenty of people that are from Spanish background and they're used to. Yeah, know, okay. Lobo Rayado. <laughs> but on the other hand, with my name, Angel, which is very different to what everyone is used to in, in, in English. And Lobo Rayado, which sounds very weird, I, I think, I really think that eventually you have to do something about that. Yeah, well, hopefully you're able to maintain that, a balance of those things. It must be pretty tricky. Um, well, is there anything else you'd like to share with the Stardust audience before we wrap up? Well, uh, just don't miss any opportunity for looking into the sky. Even, even though the world seems sometimes that is falling apart, when you go and go away from the social media, go away from the phone, just stay sometime under the stars. Try to go, not, not now because we are in lockdown in any way, the majority of us in Australia, but try to go into the into your pager and trying to look at the stars, even though there is no, you don't see many stars if you are in big cities. But right now, you have the center of the Milky Way almost in the zenith. You have Venus at the west, uh, Jupiter and Saturn rising on the east. Um, just have a moment with your own thoughts or 
with the people you love, so having a nice conversation and the stuff. Because at the end of the day, that is what humans have been doing for generations. Before we had social media, television, radio, or internet. Um, and that sometimes put us in our place. It helped us to really see our problems or issues in a different perspective. And at least for me, it really gives me a reason, an, an extra reason for fighting, for continued fighting to, to, to get people understanding why science is important, why we do have to take care of our planet and how we do have to take care of our societies and all the people that live in our, in our cities and societies. Stardust MQ is a podcast made with the support of the Macquarie University Department of Physics and Astronomy and the Macquarie University Physics and Astronomy Society. Thanks to Oliver Doherty for editing this episode. Our intro music is by Poddington Bear and our outro theme is from Ketsa. I'll talk to you next time.